0: Hello and welcome to the Plato's Academy Centre podcast. My name is Donald Robertson and in this episode I'll be speaking to William O. Stevens. Now William is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Creighton University in Nebraska and his interests include Ancient Greek and Roman Philosophy, Stoicism as a Way of Life, Stoicism in Popular Culture Ethics, animals, and the environment. He's the author of several books in philosophy, including Marcus Aurelius: A Guide for the Perplexed, that would include me, Stoic Ethics, Epictetus, and Happiness, is Freedom, and more recently, I think Epictetus's Enchiridion: A New Translation and Guide to Stoic Ethics. And I should mention he'll also be speaking at the forthcoming Plato's Academy Center virtual conference on philosophy and resilience, which is taking place. On the twentieth of May, so you can catch
1: him at that as well. So, William, welcome to the show. Thank you, Donald. Delighted to be invited. Delighted to talk with you. Well,
0: it's a pleasure to have you here, and uh, I'm speaking to you today from
1: Montreal. Um, do you want to say where you are and what it's like there today? I am in I am in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is my winter winter retirement home. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I, it might be a wee bit uh, cooler where you are. We're, uh, hard today is going to be 91 here in Scottsdale. Yeah.
0: Oh, we had an ice storm recently. It was kind of, it was pretty wild. Uh, I wasn't expecting it. It came as a bit of a surprise. So, well, let's start off by talking a, a little bit about stoicism. You've written several books on stoicism. You've written about Marcus Aurelius. You've written about Epictetus, among other things. Um, So let's start with an easy question. What is it that particularly interests you about these guys? Um, What brought you to to
1: Stoicism in the first place? Yeah, so, you know, when I was an undergraduate in college, um, I was very taken by the Socrates of Plato's early dialogues. And I had a general interest in ancient Greek philosophy. I I also enjoyed Aristotle. and I, I really didn't encounter Stoicism in my undergraduate years. So uh, I did have the notion that I, I wanted to write my dissertation. I wanted to specialize in ancient Greek philosophy. And so when I went to the University of Pennsylvania, I was you know, somewhat open-minded about uh, what I would pick to write my dissertation on. And I chose to study at Penn because of Charles Kahn. He was recommended to me by my undergraduate professors as someone who had tremendous learning in all of ancient philosophy, Greek and Roman philosophy. And Charles was the one who suggested, once he got to know me a little bit and, you know, learned about my interest in the early Socrates, the early Platonic Socrates, he's the one who suggested I read Epictetus. And I had not, I'd never heard of Epictetus. I had heard of the Stoics. I knew very little about them. And I just fell in love with the handbook and the discourses because, of course, Socrates is such mm-hmm. a hero. I mean, Socrates is the yeah. hero of Epictetus above all else, above Diogenes the Cynic and, and other figures. And so Even that's above how, you know, I kind of came to know Epictetus's work. And I was just thrilled. And and there was a time at which I was kind of on the fence: should I write my dissertation on Nietzsche, who was so powerfully exercised by the ancient Greek philosophers, or should I write on Epictetus? And I ultimately decided to write on Epictetus. And well, I'm so, glad you did. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad I did too. I still, <laughs> I'm still studying Epictetus. He's he's still he's still my favorite. And so uh, after. After studying Epictetus and discovering Adolf Bonhoeffer's work on Epictetus and then, you know, crying over the fact that no one had translated Bonhoeffer from German into English, then I realized I had to pull up my socks and, and, you know, translate Bonhoeffer's second book on Epictetus myself on the ethics, on Epictetus' ethics and then since then it's just been you know one wonderful discovery after the next reading more and more seneca reading reading marcus and as i've aged i've uh, my appreciation for marcus has only grown and uh very different kind of author than seneca you know very different sorts of writings than seneca but the roman stoics oh my gosh there's just so much there and and their different styles and personalities come through in their teachings in their writings and so you know for, for for as as an intellectual as an academic as a scholar of ancient philosophy and as someone who you know was always drawn to the ancients because of their wisdom i i just can't get enough of the roman stoics i just
0: can't Well, you know, when I was at university, we didn't study the Stoics either. And then afterwards, I asked some professors about that. And they said, well, you know, the thing about the Stoics, they're often not covered in an undergraduate philosophy curricula, because many of their ideas, they said, are derived from Plato or Aristotle or other earlier philosophers. And what the Stoics really do is figure out the practical application of those ideas to everyday life. And then they said, And why would anyone want to study that? (laughs) And I thought, and that that always stuck with me because I thought it sums up a kind of paradox. Like that was exactly what I wanted to study. Right. Um, And I think that's partly why stoicism has gone through a renaissance in popularity today. Yes. Um, And that's something I wanted to ask you about, you know, because... And part of the reason that I think I'm glad that you wrote about Epictetus is that, and Marcus is that Stoicism is now different from other academic philosophy subjects and that it's got a, quite a big following around the, the world among non-academics. And yes. I wondered what you make of that. Why do you think Stoicism, apart from what we just touched on maybe, why, why do you think Stoicism is suddenly kind of trendy and popular? I,
1: I think I think it's because... Scholars of, scholars, teachers, professors of ancient Greek and Roman philosophy have increasingly done a better job of accurately explaining that for the ancient Stoics and for Socrates and for Epicurus and his followers, philosophy was never a purely theoretical armchair exercise in 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 navel-gazing. Philosophy mm-hmm. was always for the ancients a way of life. The pursuit of wisdom was precisely to inform your decisions and shape your habits for your daily life so that you could live better, so that you could live a good life, a life with Less negativity, purging yourself over time with great effort and dedication of negative emotions, negative feelings, right? Getting lust under control, getting your greed, getting rid of greed and avarice for material wealth, right? Learning how not to get angry at trivial little nonsense things that happen, right? And so philosophy is a way of life in the last 10, 15 years has really come to the fore among academics, among the scholars. And so what should be obvious to non-academics who read Epictetus and Marcus, and, and to some extent, Seneca too, perhaps to a slightly less extent, because Seneca can be pretty dense. But But the the applicability, if we want to call it that, right, the the practice of Stoicism as a way of life and not just as a system of thought, if you will, that's become clearer and clearer. And that's why, in fact, it's the non-academics today who are more like, I would suggest, the students in Epictetus's classroom, the students in Musonius Rufus's classroom, Who recognize that philosophy will help them become better people and live better lives, Lives. right? And that this is not just some sort of monopoly of academics in Ivory Towers teaching only, you know, PhD students Mm. and writing only to be read by fellow academics in Ivory Towers, right? Stoicism is down on the ground in all fours, helping people live better Mm -hmm. lives.
0: You know, I completely agree with you. But actually, in some ways, I think that's an unusual answer because often I speak to non-academics who write or talk about stoicism, and I think they often don't give academics their due for having made the subject more accessible to the general public than perhaps they had done in the past. And you're absolutely right about that. And what you just said about us in some ways resembling um, the audiences in these uh, lectures uh, in the past, what it reminds me of is there are probably some examples in ancient literature of non-philosophers, but I'm particularly thinking of Roman poets, for example, like Horace, um, who weren't professors of philosophy, but are clearly into Epicureanism and into Stoicism, and there are bits of it that find their way into the writings of Horace in some ways, and guys like him, I think, resemble some of the, the people that are into Stoicism today that aren't academics, but it, still it, find it interesting.
1: Yes, and another example that I learned recently is Perseus, who was a student of Cornutus, right? So Perseus, another poet, right, he he was drawn to the stoic teaching of Cornutus, who was, you know, a legit philosopher, and Mm -hmm. and it transformed and informed and infused his poetry and what and his poetic style, right? His very acerbic you know, uh, he, he, he jokes about it being untasty, right? So, so you have this broad influence, I think, culturally of ancient Stoicism with Latin poetry. And, and that's what's happening today is people who hmm. are not academics are recognizing the value of, of Stoicism as a way of life in practice,
0: now, I think we've got a neat segue here. Like um, I'm quite proud of myself for for noticing, because I think, having said there's there's these poets and whatnot that kind of resemble self help authors and, and ordinary people today that are non academics. In the ancient world, one might be tempted to class Marcus Aurelius along with them because he was primarily a statesman and not a professional philosopher. But I'll stick my neck out here and say Marcus Aurelius is kind of exceptional in my view, because he's such a massive nerd about philosophy that he's almost like an academic. He, has a, he, he seems to me to be a man who has a, a, quite an exceptional training in philosophy.
1: Yes. Yes, I, I recently read, uh, I discovered a wonderful essay by uh, an American uh, poet laureate named Joseph Brodsky, who i had never encountered before. Um, and he has an homage to Marcus Aurelius and it's beautifully written as you would expect an acclaimed poet, you know, to write very well. And what he suggests that I found very intriguing and persuasive was that, as you said, Marcus really didn't have a, you know, as you were suggesting, Marcus didn't really have a choice. He was groomed, as you know, because you've written so beautifully on Marcus's biography. Um, he didn't have a choice. I mean, he was groomed for the throne from a very early age. Hadrian handpicked him. It's like that serious young guy, he's going to become, I I want him to succeed uh, Antoninus Pius as the next Roman emperor. And so he was groomed from adolescence for that role. And since he was a serious, dutiful guy, he he did not shirk that responsibility. He took it very seriously. And yet, it was never his love. What he loved mm. was reading philosophers. What he loved yeah. was reading Plato and reading about Socrates. Mm-hmm. And when he got that copy of The Meditations as a gift, and he read Epictetus, and he probably read Seneca too, although Seneca seems not to have yeah. affected him the way that Epictetus did. He never mentioned Seneca. Right, I think there's one in Both one God. letter, Fronto mentions his Aeneas mm. or something. Is that right?
0: Yeah. I think in a couple of letters, Fronto mentions Seneca, and he kind of implies that Marcus has read him. So it's one of those annoying things in classics that we don't have Marcus's replies to those comments. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear Marcus must have read, and he's read some other stuff. He's read, he's, he's read um, Lucretius and Cicero and things like that as well. But he seems yes. to have read Seneca, but says nothing yeah. about it.
1: So, so Brodsky's suggestion is basically Marcus was, you know, he, he didn't get to pursue the career he wanted. He wanted to be a philosopher. He, he even aspired mm. to be a philosopher, although he was so humble that since he didn't make it his profession, as you said, since he didn't, you know, 100% commit to being a stoic philosopher and having students and writing and whatnot, because he had a, another full-time job, Right. He, he, mm-hmm. he just did it privately, but thank goodness yeah. the meditations has survived down and come down to us, right? So, so I'm increasingly thinking of Marcus as kind of a closet Stoic philosopher. He didn't yeah. share his yeah. philosophizing explicitly with others. He did it secretly, and, that, and that's what's become ironically bequeathed to us is the meditations. Thank goodness that work survived
0: in the most widely read Stoic text, basically of all time, like despite the fact that he wasn't a professional uh, philosopher. I imagine him also, I I like to try and kind of humanize Marcus and just imagine what sort of guy he would be if you met him. Yeah, You know, although I'm speculating a little bit, but I kind of imagine he would be like the student in the the lecture that seems to actually know more about the subject than some of the professors do. Do you know what I mean? Like he's... He's yes. immersed in, in philosophy for decades. Um, yes. So he's a, a, you know, a very educa- highly educated layman, as it were. I think you're right. He probably would have wanted to be a, a philosopher if he'd had the opportunity, and maybe also a historian because he mentions in passing at one point, he seems to mention having uh, been working on a, a history of the uh famous Greeks and Romans, if I remember rightly. And I think that's in one of the letters as well. He asked Fronto for advice about how to write history. So that doesn't kind of come through, but he seems to have wanted to write history and maybe wanted to uh, to be a philosopher and but wound up in this job of emperor.
1: As did Hume, right? I mean, wasn't it Hume who wrote that wonderful history of England, right? I mean, so a very, exactly, both very learned thinkers. Marcus is so mindful of time and history and his place in history and, and the debts that the Romans have to the Greeks and the debts that he has to earlier Stoics and to Plato, right. And, and how he, and whether he will be remembered, right. He's always discounting this notion of fame, right. I mean, the, the, being famous—that's you know the clacking of tongues. That's just nonsense. That's not why he should do what he's doing. But he recognizes that Caesars before him are remembered at least for a while, yeah. and so he's concerned about how he might—he might be remembered—but he doesn't want that to deflect him from doing his duty and being righteous, mm-hmm. right, and, and speaking the truth. So yes, Marcus. Marcus's appreciation for the importance of history and change and the transmission of ideas, the history of ideas. He's very savvy about that. I I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: I think he'd have written maybe even a slightly unusual history and an interesting one, because if you look at his comments on the meditations, like you say, I mean, one of the main themes is, for example, that he, he explicitly says that Pompey, Alexander and Julius Caesar are nothing in significance compared to the, the great philosophers. So it would have been, you know, perhaps quite a radical history that he wrote in the eyes of contemporary Romans. Um, but I actually also wanted to ask you then, this probably leads quite nicely into what do you think, because you've written about both men, what do you think about the relationship between Marcus and Epictetus, we've kind of touched on the fact that Marcus was kind of really into Stoicism. Um, and that we should mention, I suppose, for our listeners that their lives actually overlap, although we're, we're fairly certain that, that they could never have met. But they, they're so close in time, and Marcus clearly um, idolizes Epictetus as well. He mentions him in passing alongside Socrates and Chrysippus, which is, is notable because he's a contemporary but he's put him up there with legendary philosophers. Um so he clearly thinks very very highly of them. What what are your thoughts about the relationship between Marcus and Epictetus? How Marcus viewed Epictetus and what he took from him?
1: Well, he he uh, he idolized Epictetus. I mean, he and and there's there's a lot to idolize, isn't there? Right? <laughs> I mean we we have to remember, I mean we you know when when Non-specialists are encountering these guys. They just seem to have weird names, right? Epictetus. Okay, that's a Greek name. Well, what does it mean? What it means is acquired, which means that Epictetus wasn't given the name of a free man at birth because he was born into slavery. He was the slave. It, it, the, the evidence suggests, you know, says that he he was a slave of a, he was the child of a slave woman. And so when you're, when you're literally born to a slave woman, you have whatever name your master is going to give to you. You're not given the prynomen and the cognomen. You're not Lucius Aeneas, Seneca. You're not Marcus Aurelius, Antoninus, Varus. You know, he had so many different names with his adoptions and all these other things. He's not, he's not an aristocrat. He's not even a free man. He's a slave. And so he's given the name acquired. Acquired, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe we should just start calling no. stop calling Epictetus Epictetus and call him acquired. So people will understand. Okay. This guy was a slave. So having you know learned having earned his you know, having having gotten permission from Epiphroditus, I guess, right? One of his masters, mm-hmm. to study Stoic philosophy with Misonius Rufus. He's the star pupil in the class, right? And you've got Dio mm-hmm. Chrysostom, right, also at the time. But Epictetus is the philosophical powerhouse in Musonius Rufus's classroom. And he's just an inspired teacher, right, judging from the prefatory letter uh, of... of
0: um, uh, Arian, yeah.
1: Uh, uh, Flavius Arian, yes, exactly. And so... Yeah. Arian does such a wonderful job, I think, of capturing what Epictetus was like in the classroom, in dialogue with his students, obviously patterned after Socratic dialogue style, dialogic style, right? Mm-hmm. This just comes through in the handbook. This comes through in the diatribes even more than the handbook, right? And Marcus is just, he eats it up. He, he, just, yeah. he, he just thinks this this is the stoicism that that speaks directly to your mind and heart. And he's inspired yeah. by it. And Epictetus has that urgency. He has that fire in his yeah. belly that that just is, is transformative. And Marcus was already steeped in these, these Platonic writings. And, and the Greek philosophers. And so to read a contemporary or, or a, you know, a slightly older contemporary, um, expressing these Stoic lessons, making them immediate and, and practically urgent to his students in the classroom. That this, is, this is why, again, I think Marcus wishes he could have been one of those students in Epictetus's classroom, taking on the mantle of a philosopher, dedicating himself as he, you know, slept on mm-hmm. the army cot, right? This was a guy who was ready yeah. for the austere life of the Stoic soldier, right? And Epictetus speak, spoke to him, I think.
0: And he narrowly missed out on it. Like, if Epictetus had lived a little bit longer, Marcus could perhaps have traveled to Greece and, and studied under him. So he must have been kind of kicking himself, like, that he missed the opportunity. But it, to speak to his kind of immersion in this, I, again, I... Well, he says that he got the discourses from Junius Rusticus, his main Stoic tutor. So we don't know for sure, but I think there's a reasonably good chance that Rusticus had probably met Epictetus because he was slightly older. And Marcus must have, because he knew so many philosophers and intellectuals, he must have met many people who had previously encountered Epictetus face-to-face. And I think that kind of contributes to the mystique and his immersion in the teachings. Mm -hmm. But also... It, reputedly, of the four volumes of the Discourses that we have today, um, there the were these are only half of the original Discourses written down by Irene that, that apparently there were another four volumes. Okay. Yeah. And, and Marcus sometimes attributes sayings to Epictetus that are in the existing Discourses, and sometimes he says things that aren't. So it's quite tantalizing to think Marcus yes. has perhaps read twice as much of the yes. discourses as we even have access
1: to today. Yes, yes. That, that's a great point. That's a very great point, yeah. Because how else, if, if he didn't meet Epictetus, how else would he be able to have attributed those sayings to him? So they must be fragments. They're likely to be fragments from those other four books of discourses. But Great point, yeah.
0: Possibly. And he, he mentions Epictetus more often than he does any other, uh, any other writer. So, or thinker, I should say.
1: But and so what? Um, and, but also, but, but Heraclitus. What I what I argue in my, my Marcus book is that yes. um, that the other, it, in, in my opinion, the other yeah. um, Greek philosopher, the much older Greek philosopher, who yeah. um, c- certainly uh, influenced Marcus's own thinking about about ephemerality and change and transience um, and and the, and the fire imagery. Is Heraclitus? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, hes I the author Marcus, he
0: mentions almost as often as Epictetus. He's yes. his second favorite philosopher. I yes,
1: yeah. So, so with Epictetus, Socrates definitely dominating his kind of, you know, uh, conceptual space. In Epictetus's case, but for Marcus, I really think it's Epictetus and Heraclitus very much so. Even more than even more than the early Stoics. I mean, sure, you know, y- because d- does he mention Chrysippus? Once or twice in the meditation? Marcus, I
0: think he mentions him, I mean, he mentions him, yeah, like once or twice just in passing, kind of name drops him. Um, but Epictetus also name drops Heraclitus, if I remember rightly. He mentions him as a great philosopher and yes, then seems to indeed. say nothing else about him. Right. So this would be a real stinker if Epictetus perhaps did talk about Heraclitus in the missing books. Like, right. <laughs> so, who, who knows? But he, he says he admires him as a great philosopher and then says nothing
1: else about it. Well, and, um, and if I remember right, what he admires about Heraclitus was, was his life. Now, mm-hmm, he doesn't say, right. oh, well, his, you know, his philosophy was, you know, his metaphysics were wonderful or, you know, his, you know, it's it, it, or, or, or even praising the artistry of his, you know, gnomic aphorisms or whatever. He just says he was, you know, a role model because of how he lived. So again, yeah. the emphasis is not on what did the guy say? It's how did he live, right? So you know Heraclitus, he yeah, he, he lived as a good man. He was a good man, right? Not not an ingenious theoretician, right? Yeah. For Epictetus. So Absolutely. yeah.
0: So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the modern reception of Stoic philosophy um, as well and maybe this would be a good juncture to do that Um, I wondered if you thought we mentioned that it's a good thing that Stoicism has become really popular and it's reaching a wider audience but there's two sides to everything and I wonder if you think in some ways Stoicism gets misrepresented or misunderstood in popular articles and podcasts and in particular I guess I'm Think I'll, I'll just put it out there that I think one of the, the common misconceptions is the idea, because I know you've mentioned this elsewhere, that stoicism is about being unemotional, um, whereas you've written about the role of love in Epictetus, if I remember rightly. And so do you think that this is a potential problem that people misinterpret stoicism as being uh, like a kind of robot, being unemotional?
1: Yeah, and, and again I, I would suggest this traces back to um to academics, <laughs> some of whom are sensitive and careful about uh about the Stoics on emotions. That there are there are the good feelings, right? There are the three eupathei uh joy, caution and and and, and wish, rational wishing. And then you've got the negative passions of anger and fear and greed and lust, um, and and so the notion that Stoics are emotionally flat, that Stoics are unemotional, passionless, drab, gray, dreary, you know, firm upper lip all the time, no matter what, basically portrays them as emotionally dead. And Epic, and this is just not careful study of what they actually say, right? I mean, Epictetus, yeah. and, and so, and my my colleagues, some of my colleagues at Creighton, um, uh, were experts in 19th century German philosophy, and huge fans of Hegel. And what does Hegel say about Stoicism? Well, Hegel says that the Stoics were kind of oblivious to their social and political circumstances, and and. The so by, by describing stoic equanimity and parsing it in such a way that um the the slave and the master slave dialectic is content with his or her lot in life. Stoicism is very dangerous, and this is not a good thing. I have colleagues who love Hegel, and so they've bought lock, stock, and barrel into this Hegelian. Distortion, I think, yeah. of what Stoicism a, is about, what Epictetus is about. And so this trickles down, right? I mean, they publish their things and they, mm-hmm. they have their swipes at, at Epictetus and the Stoics. And that distortion gets perpetuated. And so just as it's there are good scholars, yeah. there are good, careful scholars of, of the ancient Stoics, right? We know them, right? They're, they're Tony Long. There are John Sellers, right? There there are good ones. And then there are ones who are fast and loose and sloppy. And so similarly, there are good popularizers of Stoicism, right? Like like you, like Massimo Piglucci, right? People who really know the ancient texts extremely well and do a wonderful job of popularizing them for for non-academics. And then there are popularizers, Mm -hmm popular popularizers who are hacks i won't mention names but you and i know who they are and they appropriate stoicism as a kind of life hack for uh you know making money and influencing people as a capitalist and yeah. this is not what the ancient stoics were about and it's not the best part of stoicism to learn how to make a lot of demonetize it right the monetizing of the Stoic ideas is objectionable. The ancient Stoics would have recoiled. So anyway, speaking of Stoic love, yes, so I I wrote a piece on, uh, on Epictetus on how the sage loves. And a careful study of Epictetus shows that his view is that Stoics do love, but they don't love in the sense of romantic, passionate, sexual love. What Epictetus praises is loving others for their goodness, right? I mean, so what a Stoic loves above all is virtue and a Stoic recognizes in other people, their virtues. And that's what draws a Stoic to love someone is that they're kind and they're decent and they're honest and they're generous and they're fair, and they're affectionate. And that's real yeah. stoic love, not a possessive love, not I'll love you, but only as long as you love me back, right? That's a conditional kind of loving, but it's a very free mm-hmm. kind of giving, right? You express uh-huh. your affection to your family, to your children, to your friends, to your parents, and to your to your life partner, your companion, whoever that is of whichever sex and gender, right? It's that virtue which draws the love out of you to give to another. And I find this a very noble Mm -hmm. conception of love. Yeah,
0: it's obvious in a way. Of course, Stoics love virtue and they admire it in other people. And of course, they they love their teachers as well. They love Zeno and they love Socrates, uh, for instance. In book one of the meditations, we have Marcus, contemplating at length all yes. the qualities that he admires in his teachers and family members. And in there, he says in passing that one of his Stoic teachers exemplifies what it means to live in accord with nature insofar as he's free from unhealthy passions and yet full of philostorgia or natural affection, uh, as it's sometimes translated. It's so true. he seems there to straight up say that the Stoic ideal is to be full of this kind of healthy, philanthropic love.
1: Yes, exactly. And it's expressed in his letters to Fronto. I mean, he has so much affection yeah. for Fronto in the letters, oh, yeah. right?
0: And to, to, much, to such an extent, I think even it would, would surprise a lot of modern readers. He seems to be very expressive of his affection towards Fronto, but also to, to his uh, to his family members. Um, people think of Roman families sometimes as being kind of distant, but also Marcus makes it clear that he's really close to his mother and his sister, Yes, um, which is interesting. But I was going to say to back up a little bit, the academics that you talk about, I this is just an observation that I would make over the years, but I think often... When you were talking about academics that study Hegel, the ones who are most likely to misrepresent Stoicism are the ones who really specialize in the other areas of philosophy. And so Stoicism isn't really their main focus. You know, maybe they're right. a scholar of Aristotle or Plato or something like that. And then they, right. they, they, they for some reason, decided to or write Marx. about uh, a little <laughs> bit about Stoicism or Marx or, Marx, or something, right? Or right. Hegel, Hegel
1: yeah. yeah.
0: So they're kind of operating a little bit out of their, their, you know, their sphere of professional competence. And then they, you know, this leads them sometimes to, to give a, a superficial reading of the Stoics that's, that's less informed in many cases than the 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 reading of stoicism that you find in in non-academics uh circles sometimes um but absolutely, I think you know maybe one of the most common misgivings that people have about stoicism is this idea that it's unemotional, so addressing that directly in the way that you do in the article, I think is actually extremely helpful in helping people to appreciate the subject more fully.
1: And scholars have an obligation. I mean, they have a responsibility, in my view, to write clearly. I mean, there there are many scholars who think that jargon laden, dense prose is the way to get ahead in the discipline because then your language looks fancy and then it's impenetrable to non specialists. But specialists who are the ones who are going to give you tenure and give you job offers and get you job contracts or book contracts, rather. For some reason, I mean, they think that they're the ones they should be writing to or writing for. But of course, that audience is, is, you know, vanishingly small. It's a very narrow, narrow, narrow niche. Whereas, you know, if you want to communicate, don't you want to be able to communicate with everybody? Don't you want, don't you want to be able to have a broad discussion with lots of people listening and offering their perspectives? And, and to do that, you have to write clearly. So that's always been a goal for me in my own writing is how can I make the sentence clearer? How can I make it better, more accessible so that more and more people can read it and appreciate it?
0: And I'd say the irony that what you're talking about, in a sense, the seeds of it, we can trace back to what I would describe as the Socratic ideal of philosophy. Because one of the things that really characterized Socrates was that he went around doing philosophy with everybody. He did philosophy with uh, aristocrats, uh, some of the most wealthy and powerful people in Athens, but also with slaves, with foreigners, or metics, with prostitutes um yes. and with rich and poor, and even most controversially, perhaps of all, in classical Athens, he did philosophy with women, um which was kind of like something that I think upset the apple cart culturally <laughs> yes. but socrates was was known for bringing philosophy to the general public yes. and doing it in the in the in the marketplace. Um so we're we know really by being popularizers of philosophy we're really returning back to a kind of ideal and, that was embodied
1: Absolutely the, and, and and Socrates of course could hold his own against the very uh most popular sophists of his day like Protagoras yeah. so right no intellectual lightweight but so so exactly so being able to communicate effectively and connect right because in Socrates's case he cares about, I mean, this is my sense reading Plato's Dialogues. He cares about his interlocutor. He's not trying to show off. He's genuinely pursuing the truth with someone who he believes he can learn from. He, he sincerely believes he can learn from all of those people you, list, you mentioned. All of them have life experiences. They have thoughts. They have ideas. They have a sense of what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's false, what's good and bad. And and he wants to absorb that and and have a beneficial exchange so that he grows philosophically from the conversation and they grow as well. And that sincerity and also, that can't be faked. That that's real. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely that aspect to Socrates that there's a genuine, sincere desire. like, And he distances himself from kind of mere wordplay and argu- heuristics or argument just for the sake of it. Yes. Um, and it actually, I would say in Plato's dialogues, it's even kind of implied that, and certainly in the Apology, Socrates implies at one point that he found it more useful to spot, to speak to some of the people that weren't known for their wisdom, like when he talks about speaking to the artisans, he implies that he got more sense out of them than he did from some of the sophists and other intellectuals that he spoke to. Because but those also public over time figure, he seems yeah,
1: Because those public figures are always posturing. Yeah. They're oh they always care about their exactly. image and how they're being perceived. Whereas if you're talking yeah. to a cobbler, he doesn't he doesn't care about his yes. reputation. He's a cobbler. He knows if he makes good shoes, people are gonna buy them from him, yeah. right? And so you don't have that pretense. You don't have that ego. You don't have the pomposity when you're talking to regular people.
0: Well, that's pretty much exemplified in Plato's Protagoras, where Protagoras is quite evasive with Socrates and several times tries to end the the debate and get out of it. And he's pretty explicit in the dialogue, at least, in saying it's because he's concerned about how people are going to perceive him um, if he allows himself to be uh, interrogated by Socrates' question and answer method. Well, you know, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about when we were talking about the the popularity of Stoicism and how it's spread today is that, you know, when I first became interested in, in Stoicism, we started making online courses with Chris Gill and John Sellers, the modern sto what became the Modern Stoicism Organization, I remember distinctly thinking that within a couple of years there's probably going to be uh, Epicurean Week. And there'll be, you know, people will get interested in this rival, Stoicism's most uh, prominent ancient rival, perhaps. But then over time, I noticed that just didn't happen. I was wrong. Epicureanism didn't take off. There have been some popular books on it. There have been some online communities and stuff. But it never ignited popular interest in the way that Stoicism did. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about the relationship between the two philosophies. And why Epicureanism, which was a popular philosophy in imperial Rome, has yeah. failed to become one again today to the same extent that Stoicism has? This
1: is this is a really good question. I'm glad, I'm glad you, you're asking this and, and kind of prodding me to think about this. Um, I, I think there are a couple things going on there. You, you, on the one hand, given contemporary culture... And the materialism, the cons, you know, consumer culture, right—buying stuff, owning stuff, having stuff—images everything. You might think that a hedonist kind of philosophy would thrive, <laughs> because with with people, you know that you know, it, p- pleasure is seductive. And there are different kinds of pleasures. And so you would think that a hedonistic philosophy might be extremely popular these days, uh, if you have a kind of, you know, I may call it cynical outlook. But in fact, our notion of hedonism today sits rather poorly with ancient Epicureanism. Because if you observe an Epicurean eating, drinking, going about her life day after day, you would, you would think that that person could either be an Epicurean sage or a Stoic sage because neither one of them believed that indulging in your appetites for as much delicious food and alcohol and having lots of wild sex org- orgies and this sort of thing, this is not what motivates an Epicurean to live the good life the epicurean is going mm-hmm. to be just as spare just as austere as the stoic content with barley and maybe a pot of cheese a little pot of cheese as a special treat mm-hmm. so in terms of you know eschewing that kind of gluttonous you know uh uh you know or orgy driven way of life th- this is not what the ancient epicureans about so what were they about well they did believe that the virtues allowed one to live pleasantly. But Mm -hmm. the thing about Epicureanism, I think one part of it is that it's not going to catch on in our sorts of, in our sort of cultural milieu, because the Epicureans were not very social political creatures. Exactly. Epicurean Epicurus said, you know, the way to live a serene life, the way to avoid hassles is to stay out of the public square. Don't, Uh don't get involved in, in politics. Don't get involved in your political community. Just hang out at home, enjoy the garden in your backyard, invite a few friends over and talk about philosophy and and do some astronomy and recognize that the gods are not out to get you and that when there's mm. lightning and thunder and earthquakes this is not the gods being angry they're not out to get you they they have bigger fish to fry than any human concern so you should model yourself after their ataraxia their peace of mind they don't sweat the small stuff you shouldn't either but you don't have to go into the temple and make special sacrifices. You don't have to do any of that stuff. Just recognize that nature is composed of atoms and void and understand the physics of it enough to recognize that an eclipse is not the gods getting angry, right? And then you can enjoy simple food taken from your garden with your friends and not get involved socially and politically. Whereas the Stoics, they recognize with Aristotle and Plato, that human beings are through and through social and political animals. We associate, right, through oikiosis. We recognize those who are akin to us. We build out our family from our offspring and our spouses and our parents to include broader and broader circles, right, as Hierocles described, right, taking in friends and neighbors and associates. And so stoicism is extremely socially and politically savvy in that regard. And it urges us to recognize our duties to our neighbors, Mm -hmm. to our work colleagues, to our fellow travelers on the bus, to our fellow registered voters in our district, right? And it impels us to seek justice in a cooperative way, but not to get angry and frustrated if what we attempt to achieve in social progress and political improvement runs into roadblocks and hurdles and setbacks. All of that's to be expected. So this twin citizenship mm-hmm. that and, Seneca and Marcus talk about, right? That you're you're a citizen of your local yes. polis and you're a citizen of the grand cosmopolis that's the universe, this kind of twin citizenship right. this speaks to modern life in a way that the age of the internet. Yeah. Yeah, I exactly. think they anticipated the internet as opposed right. to withdrawal. It, so you have that withdrawal with yeah. epicureanism, right? You with you retreat from This social, political hurly-burly, right? Which can get contentious, right? You retreat Uh from that to enjoy your private serenity with your pals. And and that kind of retreat, that doesn't fly well except for those people who want to live off the grid, Uh on a mountain, a long way from other people.
0: Well, I'm going to say something now that I know kind of offends Epicureans a little bit, but I'm going to say it anyway, because it's true. They, <laughs> and this maybe is, from my perspective, this may be a little bit of a bias from my background. I think one of the reasons it hasn't taken off as much is that Epicureanism does not have the popularity with psychologists and psychotherapists that stoicism has. And psychotherapy has lent some psychological credibility to the ideas that are are found in stoicism. Cognitive therapists really recognize a lot of aspects of stoicism and and think that it makes good psychological sense. And far more than I think most academics would uh, would assume, Epicureanism contains ideas that would be seen as potentially bad psychological advice or controversial um, in the the field of psychotherapy. You know, Epicurus does seem to recommend withdrawal like supposedly over the entrance to the garden, it said live in obscurity and avoidance or withdrawal isn't a strategy that we'd normally endorse in modern psychotherapy. It doesn't usually work out that well in the long run. There's other problems with uh, the conceptualization of emotion that you find in Epicureanism. But that leads me to mentioning that because it's, it's another segue into another section of the, the interview today, which is I wanted to ask you what you think Stoicism Can Teach Us About Psychological Resilience. That's the topic of the conference that we've got coming up. And I know that you have some interest in anxiety and phobias in relation to Stoicism. What do you believe Stoicism has to offer? Maybe the other philosophies like Epicureanism don't offer with regard to helping modern men and women cope emotionally with the challenges of modern living.
1: Wow. Well, this this would be more appropriate for me to be asking you (laughs) <laughs> because you're, you're an expert. You're the expert in this area. So, I mean, that's uh, why I like asking people about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. I mean, I mean, stoicism. Uh, I mean, who, who do we want to talk about? Victor Frankl and man's search for meaning. I mean, uh, Holocaust yeah. survivors. I mean, there are just so many people who have faced extreme trauma in warfare mm-hmm. during pandemics right um uh prisoners nelson mandela i mean there are people who have been incarcerated who oh well i mean uh how about james bond stockdale right yeah so here's here's a navy here's a navy pilot who a naval aviator who's shot down over vietnam And as soon as, as he's, you know, ejecting from his cockpit, he recalls his training, his education at Stanford, and recalls Epictetus. And he recognizes he's going to be taken a prisoner of war. And this is a matter of just the one minute it takes his parachute to fall. He's going to be horribly abused. He's going to be a prisoner for years. He might not ever escape. And the only thing that's going to allow him to cling to his sanity is the extent to which he lives not just every day or week, every hour he maintains his mental, he can maintain his mental, his sanity, his soundness of mind only if he rehearses every moment the dichotomy of control. What's up to him, what isn't. What what he can try to influence and what he should not even hope for, right? He, he has to live Epictetus's philosophy every moment as a prisoner of war, if he's going to have any chance of surviving the experience. And at one point, he he realizes that in terms of his physical resilience, he's been subjected to so much torture that he might not be able to keep some information to himself when he's being interrogated and tortured. And he loses his confidence in the ability to to keep that information to himself. And if he were to divulge it, he says it would endanger other people in the prison and might cost them their lives and they would be tortured perhaps to death. And so it's at that point that he realizes the only sane and right thing to do is for him to kill himself. And he attempts suicide and bloodies himself up, but then survives it. And then the circumstance mm-hmm. in the prison changes such that he's no longer in a position where he could endanger other prisoners. It's just a remarkable story. And and who gets the credit for that? Well, it's, it's his understanding of Stoicism. That is just one example. You know, a hundred of them, Donald. You know, a hundred of these examples, right? Where Stoicism literally helps people yeah. survive in extreme circumstances where they might not have survived, or at least might not have survived with all of their marbles intact if they mm-hmm. hadn't been able to, if they didn't know the Stoicism and they didn't have the metal, the discipline to apply it yeah, to their yeah. desires and their expectations and their judgments moment to moment. One of the nice
0: things that came from all the online stuff that we did with uh, Chris Gill and modern Stoicism, that we had feedback forms oh. that we got people to complete that did the online courses from thousands of people telling us personal stories about how stoicism had saved their life in some cases because they yes. didn't cope with suicidality or addiction or trauma addictions kind of, it, it
1: absolutely and, yeah. and that's it and and to your credit and 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 John's and Chris's I mean this is why modern stoicism has done such a wonderful public service in in, in bringing stoicism to this broader audience Because they're, (laughs) what was I seen recently commenting on how, um, America is full of addicts. Some of them Mm. are addicted to, to fentanyl and other, other drugs. Others are addicted to gambling. Others are addicted to shopping. So there are many, there are many different kinds of, um, well, Obsessive compulsive behavior is what it's called, right? I mean, and so Stoicism does give us tools for combating, for overcoming, um, or at least at least moderating these addictive impulses, which I suppose everybody has some impulses to do something too much, too often, right? Um, and so. Yeah, it's wonderful that, you know, it's just so smart to have those questionnaires collect because that's that's just good science, right? You're collecting empirical data about people's experience in doing the conferences. And it, it's just been a wonderful yeah. service. I, I I just I applaud all of you for, for the great work you've done on that front.
0: And we, I should mention Tim LeBon is the research director of Modern Stoicism. He's a cognitive therapist in NHS. And so he started to produce Gradually over time, some more and more pretty robust data showing the, the benefits of, of people using Stoicism and reading the Stoics and so on. Now, that's how Stoicism can benefit people. How can Stoicism benefit plants and animals is my, my next question. Maybe that's a kind of quaint way of putting it. But I know that you have an interest in, in animal rights and in the environment. And I, it seems to me, and I could be wrong, that the ancient Stoics weren't particularly known for caring about animal rights, I think because of their view of providence. Um, But, you know, but then nevertheless, like I do agree, I do believe that their philosophy provides a foundation um, for understanding animal rights and environmentalism and modern questions and applied ethics like that. And I wonder what you have to to say about those subjects.
1: Yeah, well, so, so, you know, at, at the most basic level of Stoic doctrine, The formula for happiness is what? It's living in agreement with nature. And that concept of nature is a very rich one for the Stoics because it means, at the broadest level, it means the universe. So living in agreement with nature means living in agreement with the universe and and the things that happen regularly. Some people call them natural laws this can be a little misleading because then it begs the question, well, who's the natural legislator? So whether one has a theistic or pantheistic theology um, at, at the broadest level, living in agreement with nature is living in agreement with things that happen regularly in the universe and organic processes within the universe. So for animals, this means living in agreement with Your nature as a mammal or a bird or an invertebrate or whatever. And for human beings, this means that you've got to eat, you've got to sleep, and you have to have a stimuli-rich environment such that you can live happily as a rational being. With that concept comes the notion of ecology, right? Ecology being at home in a place, right? The, the logic of, of biological and chemical processes in a habitat. And so ecological stability and biological diversity of species, the, these environmental goods are not alien to the Stoic understanding of nature's richness and fecundity and ultimately co- communal nat- communal aspect, right? You've got all of these different species of plants and insects and animals interacting with the water and the soil in such a way that you have a kind of harmony and balance, give and take, even with predators and prey and herbivores and carnivores and omnivores. And so these kinds of ecological ideas are in the ancient Stoics in their texts. And so the work of people like Kai Whiting and Chris Gill, right? Chris has a new book on on the Stoics, on especially, he looks especially at Cicero, Not as much on the Roman Stoics, which I find a little surprising, but he has a, he, he mines a lot of valuable texts out of Cicero to argue for Mm -hmm. a kind of informed uh, environmentalism that is very much harmonious with and can be derived from ideas in the Stoics. Um, And Mm -hmm. so uh, I've done, I've written a couple of pieces over the years on, um, stoicism and food ethics stoicism and vegetarianism um, and I also published a piece last that came out last fall on uh, agrarianism on how environmental virtue ethics um, calls for a certain approach to prudent uh, virtue driven um, agricultural practices um, and and there, there are a number of affinities that the ancient Stoics had, the ancient Roman Stoics um, in particular, had with uh, farming. Musonius Rufus talks about farming, mm-hmm. Cato, uh, Cato the Younger, and, and you know, he embodies a certain tradition going back to Cincinnatus about about the kind of mm-hmm. gentleman, soldier, general, farmer, right? So, recognizing Mm -hmm. that the earth is our our breadbasket. This is where we get our food plants. This is where we get our oxygen, right? So the closeness, the connection with biological uh, processes and the importance of recognizing our place in the natural world and how to be fellow citizens and share it with other plants and animals. This is very, these are stoic ideas. They're not, they're not new they they weren't they, they weren't born with Aldo Leopold, you know his ideas are indebted to the ancient Stoics for providing very rich, fertile, if you'll allow me the pun, uh, material for um, Stoic environmentalism.
0: Absolutely, I think I'd put it kind of conversely as well. Is that I, I see Stoicism, the whole of Stoicism, therapeutically, but also in part as a remedy for feelings of alienation from. The rest of mankind, or alienation from the rest of nature, and uh, in a sense, very simply, I think Stoic ethics revolves around rediscovering, because they're pantheists, I think in part, rediscovering yes. a sense of unity and oneness with the whole of mankind through cosmopolitan ethics, and with the whole of nature, partly through their, their metaphysics and the theology. I, I
1: think that's. I think that's exactly right, and it also reminds me of another. Point of uh, disagreement with, uh, or the difference with the Epicureans, right? With Epicureans, things are all ultimately atoms in the void. There's no providence. In what sense Mm -hmm. do you belong to the universe as an Epicurean? You don't, you don't, you don't have that sense of belonging. You belong to that group of friends that's withdrawn from, from politics and the rest of society and the state. That, that that you fashion on your own as a, as made mm-hmm. of atoms of void. There's just no kind of providential belonging there at all. Um, where stoicism yeah. is, is, is that's that's central to stoic thought.
0: Is known for this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. We've had a pretty wide ranging discussion, and uh, I think <laughs> it's been it's been fun. Um, so I guess we should work towards a conclusion, and I should ask you if the is there anything else that you wanted to tell our listeners or mention before we wrap things up for this
1: episode? Uh, I just wanted to uh, express my thanks to you, Donald. I'm doing work on um, uh, a paper on Marcus's meditations mm-hmm. for the uh, Oxford handbook of stoicism. And I'm mm-hmm. slogging through, I'm working at my snail's pace, my usual snail's pace um, on Marcus's reception. And so okay. I was looking for uh, american philosophers that marcus has influenced and i found your piece from i think 2017 on marcus aurelius and emerson ralph waldo emerson oh yeah wonderful i did write a
0: thing about emerson so i'm learning more about he calls him he calls him antoninus Right, yes. just to be kind of opaque, so maybe that's why it kind of flew under the radar for for some people. But he, <laughs> well, he it's not, yeah, it's not he, that he's
1: being opaque. That that was actually the common trend back uh, a century ago. Yeah, is that he would be that no, was he was his official to, name?
0: Yes, yeah. Yes. Actually, there's, there's a part in the Meditations where he refers to himself, and he refers to himself as Antoninus. Yes, in the Meditations. Yes. So it's a wonderful
1: it, piece. I yeah. recommend it to your to your listeners. So, it, it's a wonderful piece. It was very useful to me. I've learned more about, um, William James, how Marcus was hugely influential on William James when he was a young man and how he shared it with his friends. And so these, these American transcendentalists and pragmatists, yeah. again, Marcus, Seneca and Epictetus too, but, but Marcus very much prominent yeah. in, in influencing these American philosophers. Really fascinating. The more I study the impact of Stoicism in the history of philosophy, the more yeah. I learn.
0: It's more pervasive, actually, than people realize it really is. Yes. You know, the more you study, you see it, it kind of cropping up in, in lots of unexpected places. Well, that seems like a good place to conclude our discussion today. So I want to thank you once again for joining us. It's been an absolute joy. Um, and uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in and, and listening So it's goodbye from me, Donald Robertson, and goodbye from my guest here, William O. Stevens. And uh, I hope everyone enjoys the episode, and, and please comment below with your thoughts and questions.